And I'm Brian Avery. And welcome to Voices from the Field, the Faculty and Focus Series. The University of Florida Department of Sport Management faculty conducts significant research and advances purposeful content across academic fields, within the industry and in the classroom. The Voices from the Field Faculty and Focus Series provides a glimpse into the research and work that influential faculty members within the UFSPM conduct, publish, and lecture on. We are excited to be with all of you this week and with our special guest, Christopher McLeod. Chris is currently an assistant professor at the University of Florida in the Department of Sport Management. So Christopher earned his PhD in sport management from Florida State University in 2017 and his MS in sport management from FSU in 2013 and his BS in physical education from the University of Otago in New Zealand in 2012. Christopher studies athletes, the ecosystems that invest in them and the leagues that employ them. We're looking forward to exploring the work you're doing at UF that is making a difference both locally and globally. Thanks for being with us today, Chris. Thank you for having me, Shelley and Brian. This is a great pleasure. Definitely. We're excited to have our first Faculty in Focus series. Uh, you'll be the first guest. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Chris, start us out. How can you, um, can you share your career journey starting with university? Um, you know, when did you know you wanted to become a professor and then maybe why sport management? Yeah, at University of Otago, they've got a School of Physical Education, which is one of the oldest in the world, like very, very good reputation. And they have an honors program there that's a little bit different from the type of honors program that we usually see in the States. So when you do the honors program as an undergrad, you actually spend two whole years on a research project. So I was lucky enough to be uh, accepted into that program and I spent two years on a study of uh, youth tennis clubs in New Zealand, like really in-depth ethnography, interviewing a lot of people. I had a fantastic advisor, Dr. Mark Falkus there in Otago. And I originally I just started the honours because I wanted to do the best that I possibly could for my degree. But in this project, I realized that I loved research. I loved the research process. I loved interviewing and talking to people who knew so much about what they were doing and learning from them. So I decided then that I uh, wanted to give more thought to being a researcher. I reached out to Dr. Joshua Newman, who is actually at Florida State University. The reason I reached out to him is because he taught for a couple of years in Otago. So he was my one of my professors and he had moved back to the, to the US to be close to his family. And I asked him about master's degrees overseas and he said, yeah, you can come study here, here or over there. Or why not come to me at Florida State and we'll um, we'll give you a scholarship and, and support your research here. So I thought that would be fantastic. Right. Uh, came to Florida State and did my master's and PhD. And well, that was just worked out perfectly. It was really good, yeah. Very cool. And um, in your current position, what courses are you teaching at Florida and what research are you focused on right now? Yeah, I am teaching sports business and finance at the undergraduate level and uh, financial management at the graduate level. My research projects, uh, I've got sort of got my catchphrase for my research is human capital. And what that means is um, first that the sport industry at its heart depends on extremely talented people giving superlative performances that cannot be replicated. But it also means that we can invest in people to make them better, healthier and happier. So my research revolves around that, but at the moment, what I'm focusing on is um, human capital investments from the perspective of athletes. And very particularly, I'm interested in their expectations. So when you join a development league, like minor league baseball, for example, what are your expectations of the future and how is that influencing uh, the decisions you're making in the development league uh, and I'm looking at a few other contexts as well. Gotcha. And where does that, you know, passion, interest come from? Have you always, 
you know, um, it sounds like you figured out you were you're passionate about research, but what what are what's in these topics that kind of has caught you? A few things. So one, I love working and I love it when people have jobs that they love. So like studying athletes who love their work is really interesting to me. Uh, I also really dislike when there are injustices or unfairness things happening in the world. And that's one of the things that drew me to minor league baseball. Uh, I've talked to Brian a little bit about this and other times, but um, Congress passed this act called Save the America's Pastime Act, which uh, essentially made it legal to not pay minor league baseball players um, the minimum wage or overtime. And when I heard about that, I thought that was silly and, and unfair. And I reached out to some people working with baseball players and said, I want to help you where I can with some research. So that's another reason. And then the last thing is I'm fascinated by people who are extremely optimistic. And the, the, the concept that I use in a lot of this research is unrealistic optimism, which is the idea that people persistently um, overestimate the chances that good things are going to happen to them and underestimate the chances that bad things are going to happen to them. I am the opposite in a, in a lot of the type the ways that I think about the world. Like I very, I know that the probability of this happening is this much, um, but athletes are awesome because they are like so optimistic about what they can do and, and what their chances are. So that's a really nice, I'm often impressed by the way that, that athletes see the world. Um, and it, it just fascinates me to, to study them in that context. Yeah, you know, Chris, you had said it was silly uh, what Congress had done a, a while back. I think that's a polite way of, of putting it, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. Now, with respect to your research and, and the level of optimism, when you present some of the research, if you will, to these athletes, I mean, what are some of the reactions that you get? Uh, you know, is it is it disheartening? Is it crushing? Do they still continue with that enthusiasm? I mean, what, what's the, the pulse, if you will? There's, it's, uh, there's a lot going on, but I'll give you some highlights. Um, some athletes, so I'll give you a little bit of background on how this method usually works. In baseball, what I've done is I partnered with my colleague, David Pfeiffer, who's now just started a job at Florida State, actually. Okay. We built a uh, algorithm that uh, predicts a player's advancement through the minor league levels. Mm -hmm. So it gives a, you know, there's a, this much probability that you'll make it to double A next year, this much probability that you'll stay in low A, and this much probability that you'll be out of baseball. We use the algorithm to create what we call a career tree. So it's like a, a tree of showing different probabilities of different types uh, career pathways through the system. I interview players and I get them to build their own tree. And then I show them the tree that our, our algorithm built. Um, and we discuss it. We just talk about like, what are the differences? Um, I also ask them if it changes their expectations, for example. Gotcha. So in the long run, we're, I'm interested in helping athletes make excellent decisions, okay. uh, whatever that might mean for them. Now, when I show athletes those trees, I get some responses like, well, the chance of being out is way, way higher than I, than I, than I said. Mm. Uh, but, you know, that makes sense. Um, but my most favorite my most favorite, that's a terrible phrase. My favorite response that I get is when athletes, um, some of them will like take screenshots or say, I want you to send me a copy of this because I'm going to stick it on my wall and use it for motivation. Yeah. And when I make it to the majors, I'm going to come back to you and say, the algorithm was wrong, so that sort of thing. So again, that, that comes back to this, um, this sort of, culture of optimism that's that's in professional sport oh that's fascinating uh, i know you had said before too when we spoke that 
you're doing this in esports as well as you're, you're challenging some of the, the inclinations or thoughts in that industry. Yeah, so the research on esports is um, the, the way that this is sort of building off the, the minor league baseball work is that esports is an extremely unequal labor market in terms of rewards. So you can think of this in a, in a couple of different ways. So imagine the esports athletes that go into streaming, for example, or the ones that go primarily into trying winning prize money. Now, if you look at how the money that is distributed from streaming or prizes is distributed very, very unequally. And what I mean by that is a few people make a whole lot of money, but most people make not very much money. And I mean, there are a bunch of other people who are making absolutely no money. Yeah. So I'm interested in how people, how esports competitors or athletes, whatever you want to describe them as, how they form expectations of the income that they're going to earn in this incredibly uh, unequal labor market. I think that's important to understand for esports, but I also think it characterizes a lot of what the sport industry is like. The, the rewards for people who try to become professional athletes are distributed very unequally. Um, and it's important to know how people make expectations in that context and whether there's anything that we need to do to help people make more accurate expectations. But even bigger than that, the world is becoming more unequal. American, uh, the, the, the ratio between the top earners and the bottom earners in the United States is growing. Like there's more inequality that is characteristic of most developed and many developing nations today. So, understanding how people form income expectations and conditions of inequality is actually a really important question for a lot of what's happening uh, in the world. So I, I might have got off topic there a little bit. No, uh, yeah, did I, did I uh, answer your question? You did. No, I could spend an hour or two just on this, uh, if you will. But I, I do realize we've got other topics that we've got to hit on. So I'll, I'll give just one just one example that I yeah I please you that I forgot to, well, I didn't mention then, but uh, the game with the most prize money, the highest ranked game in terms of prize money is Dota 2, I believe. Okay. And when we calculate the Gini coefficient for Dota 2, the, the prize money distribution, it's 0.94. So what does that mean? Well, a Gini coefficient is a measure of inequality. Zero means that everyone earns the same amount one means that one person earns all the money that there is to be earned and everyone else earns zero. So if we have a Gini coefficient of 0.94, that shows us as, as close to extreme inequality, to perfect inequality as you can get. Um, it's much higher than the Gini coefficient for income distribution in the United States. It's higher than the Gini coefficient for the income distribution in Major League Baseball. It's I don't think there's much comparable to it. No, I, this is something I'll be sharing with my children. Uh, <laughs> and I think I'll extrapolate and kind of publish in other places because there's just this common belief that everyone's getting wealthy in esports in some capacity. And it just, it seems almost the exact opposite. Uh, so I'll tell well, them, less video I, games, more studying. No. <laughs> yeah. I will interrupt you one more time, Brian. I'm no, sorry, you're good. But I just get so <laughs> excited and passionate about it. <laughs> This, that's the reason why this is important. All the media and stuff about esports is like, this is such a great opportunity. You can, yeah. young gamers can focus on their craft and then earn a lot of money. And that is true for a few people, mm -hmm. but for the majority, it's not. And if you still want to be a gamer and you know that, that's totally cool with me. I'm not trying to stop people pursuing their dreams of becoming professional baseball players or professional yeah. esports athletes. But I do think we need to think carefully about like whether people are having the full information and the right types of support when it comes to like career transitions or whatever, when they are um, pursuing those dreams. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a noble thing, but it also uh, needs to be supported in the right way. Yeah, we yeah, do. I just, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. just going to chime in on that too, as um, knowing athletes, having been an athlete at Florida, the idea of like, there's only one way and that's to go pro. Like that's my, my tunnel vision is here and, and, you know, everything else. And in some ways it's a blessing for some because it's like kept them focused on the sport and what allowed them to be as good as they are. However, everyone's path will end at some point. Um, so I, I really appreciate the purpose and drive, but it sounds like behind your research is to educate and enlighten um, kind of the bigger, broader picture for athletes, whether that's esports or um, regular athletes to kind of know the full spectrum of what um, what life entails and the, rea the realistic um, potential outcomes of what they're pursuing for sure. So isn't just like, let's do more research or this is interesting to me. It really seems like it's for the betterment of people um, in these arenas. Yeah, that's what I, I'd hope that. I'm not sure if I if I always meet those goals, but yeah, I appreciate that, Shelley. I think that's what we try to do. Yeah. yeah. No, and I think this is extremely insightful and is going to help a lot of people at least give them pause and, and maybe they'll do some additional homework uh, with respect to what their expectations can be. Uh, we, I know Shelley and I touch on this a lot in professional development too. It's like, you know, you, you say you want to be a coach or an athletic director or this is about the same odds at the end of the day. So, you know, it's really calculating that and, and what's your pathway to get there. So uh, now coming back to square, if you will, in, in, in kind of just looking your day to day with the way you research and or lecture and things, what, what kind of duties and, and what roles do you take on uh, to accomplish these things? Yes. Um, so, sorry, Brian, I'll just be caught up on the last thing you said. I want to add one. No, more. go ahead. <laughs> that, you. The, I, I would not like if the take home message was that people need to be better at making decisions themselves. Okay. There all needs to be, there's like policies that we can implement. There's organizational practices that we can implement to help improve these situations as well. So it's not about personal failings. It's also about the other stuff that we can do to be supportive. Yeah. Um, but the roles and duties, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Is anyone else getting that? A little, but it's fading quick. So I think we're we're good on audio. At least I'm okay. hopeful. No. <laughs> so I, I spend a lot of time preparing for class and conducting research. Um, I think one of the things that people would be surprised about, maybe some of my students, is how much that means just reading. I yeah. spend a lot of my day, a lot of my week reading. Um, probably the other cool thing about the research that I do is occasionally I get to interview very cool people. In the past, I've interviewed commissioners of leagues and um, general managers of teams, things like that. So that's, an, that's one of the little perks of my job. Um, but my typical day, I'll have a some days are just research days. Other days when I do teaching, I'll, I'll, I'll do some teaching uh, preparation, grading, stuff like that. The basics. Yeah. No, I respect <laughs> you, you know, when it comes to having access, if you will, and, and being able to interview uh, some of these individuals, it's fun, but it's also stressful, I can imagine, because a lot of emphasis or focus on what are you doing and what are you doing with this research and, and where's this data going and and uh, how's it going to be interpreted? Is it going to come back and shine a bad light on me or my organization? So I can imagine, you know, those can be challenging uh, at, at times. But uh, of that, you know, and aside from uh, those types of experiences, what is the most rewarding or most challenging part uh, of your job? The most rewarding and the most challenging. Yeah. It could be the same thing, maybe. <laughs> it could be the same thing or a different thing. I, the best thing about this job is how you get to follow whatever interests you and you spend most of your time doing that, whatever interests you. Like you have a question, you're curious about something and you get to dedicate five days a week to trying to answer that question, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, I love that. The most challenging thing 
social being a social scientist is about constantly questioning what you know your assumptions what the best way to understand the world what is true what is false like it's it's you don't get a you don't get a break from questioning yourself um and i think that's actually especially the case in the social sciences and so what i mean by that is the social changes the natural world doesn't change that frequently unless you're in the middle of a climate crisis for example but the social world's changing all the time the other thing about social science is the people that you do research on read your research mm. right the bugs and molecules do not read uh, you know laboratory studies right. about them so that means you need to be really constantly questioning your assumptions and how you do things and you have to be committed to the fact that you are ignorant about pretty much everything and your job is simply to become a little less ignorant over the course of your career um, that is very very hard when we get we get few validations of at whether we're good or not so let's say I think the average uh, pub number of publications from tenure track faculty in our department was 4.3 this year. So that means that about 4.3 times a year, we each faculty member got validation of, of a job well done. That can be a long stretch between those between those acceptances. No, I can respect that. Uh, that's for sure. And, and as you said aptly. Uh, the more I read, I feel the less I know uh, at the end of the day. So it gets frustrating and you question yourself constantly. So I can respect yeah. that. Yeah. I think that's a really humble stance to take too, yeah. you know, and I, I think that's an awesome way to approach how you're uh, educating others as well as the education that you're receiving. Um, so when students that I imagine that trickles down in your classroom as well, you know, a teacher who's open to, oh, I, you know, to learning and constantly maybe I'm not sure, you know, um, and I think that's a very, very cool um, approach for our, our students, for sure. I think an underrated response to a student question is, I don't know. That's um, you know, when we are first put in front of the classroom, you feel like you have to protect yourself, like you're, um, that students might try and like pull you down. You, you need to be the expert in an unfallible way. But the more that I've taught, the more I recognize that um, not knowing the answer is the case for most things. And being honest about that and also following up with like, well, it'd be cool if you went home and learned about that and came back next week and told the class is a more it's a, a better approach for everybody's learning and curiosity than um, sort of pretending to answer something that you're not so sure of. So uh, yeah, Shelly, I, I agree with what you say. Well, and what, um, as an assistant professor, how have you evolved? You know, you, you kind of just spoke into that on growing and learning, um, but what would you say, maybe starting with, you know, your first year in university to where you are now. Um, yeah, how have you changed and grown as an educator, researcher, person? Yeah, uh, educator, researcher, person. So as an educator, what, so one of the problems I think with PhD education is that we're not often actually taught how to teach. Mm. It's just expected that you can get in front of the classroom that you're a subject matter expert and that you can teach but teaching is a profession you know it is there's so much that goes into it um, and i was lucky enough to have a colleague when i was studying my phd he took a teaching seminar as part of his phd uh, instruction and recommended it to me and that was my first insight into teaching as like a science yeah, there's whole departments have spent hundreds of years trying to study how to be, 
the, do pedagogy the best, right? Mm. And that uh, really opened the door for recognizing how much there is to learn about teaching. And I've been lucky enough to have some excellent mentors. My uh, chair when I was at Texas Tech, Angela Lumpkin, is very, very concerned with being a great teacher. So she helped me develop there. So teaching, I've developed a lot. Um, as a researcher, wow, it's, I, if I sometimes I think about if I was pushed back in time and got to meet myself five years ago, like, I don't think the two people would get along very well because we have totally different opinions about what good social sciences, what good research is. Um, it, yeah, I change my mind so often that that's where I've evolved a lot as a person <laughs> that might be a little bit too deep to get into given the, <laughs> the, the evolution of uh, my teaching and, and research aside um, okay well we can we can move on if you don't want to delve yeah. into that side of the, the question that is totally I'm just fine. not sure where to start shall we? <laughs> Well, if you want to go back, you're always welcome to re-answer that question. I'll think of something. <laughs> uh, um, for those students who are interested in, in pursuing a career in academia, is there a pathway you can kind of, kind of clearly identify um, that can lead to a role like yours? I know yours is a, is a little unique for some of our students um, that are res that who are American, and you obviously were international, so your mm -hmm. path might have been different. But if you can kind of speak from both perspectives. What would you share? Yeah, get involved in research as early as you can is really the key. Just to figure out if you if you like it, and that experience is so crucial. So I would recommend undergrads who are interested in an ac Korean academia to reach out to faculty members and ask if they can help or get involved. Um, I've had undergraduates work with me on research projects before, um, and we love help we love help uh, sometimes you know you have to be a bit persistent because faculty members might not always have a project open that's a, a great fit for you but um, yeah that would be the, the first step then do a master's with a thesis and do a good job on your thesis um, those research experiences are going to be key for applying to phd programs uh, if you've done a thesis, that's a big, big step in the right direction. If you have managed to be on a published research article or a presentation, that would go such a long way to getting into a program like University of Florida. We want we, the experiences. It's really important. Uh, and then the key, I think, is when you go for PhD programs is to find the best advisor, the best supervisor. Um, and that by that, I mean the best supervisor or advisor for you, not necessarily the, the top gun in the field, the person who shares your interests that you think is going to have a good mentoring relationship with you. Um, the department matters. Yeah, it does. The funding that you can get matters. Yes, it does. But at the end, it's the advisor that's by far the most important because you're going to be working very closely with them for four or five years. Um, they are going to be your advocate. They are going to be your best mentor. And that makes all the difference, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of elaborating on, on you know, Shelley's question here. During your four to five years, I would imagine, as a doctoral student, you know, what are some of the key takeaways that you could share that, might provide some enlightenment or insight to a student that might be on the fence about, do I go, do I not? Is this for me? How will it change the way I, I view the world or think or things along those lines? That's a good question, Brian. There, this is a whole podcast in itself. Exactly. I'll, I'll give a couple that are maybe a bit more personal to my experience yeah. on the assumption that you asked this for a lot of people and together yeah. you'll, you'll get a good idea. Yeah. For me, it was all about reading, like reading, okay. reading, reading, and reading really weird stuff. The first book that my supervisor had me read was 
what was it called? It's Homo Saker, Sovereign Power and Beer Life by Giorgio Agamben, who's like a like a literary theorist. Okay. And the book was about biopolitics, which is the politics of life with a particular focus <laughs> on the Holocaust. So that was the very first book that I read in my PhD. And it is way, way out of left field when it comes to sport yeah. management. But that book and like, it's, it's the, I'm gonna have to come around this from another angle. Yeah. The key thing about our job is actually creativity. It's okay. coming up with new ideas. I believe that you come up with new ideas by making connections between things that haven't been made before. Mm -hmm. No one really comes up with a new idea. They just connect different things in a new way. So the most beneficial thing for me, I think, looking back was how widely I read and all that really strange, obscure stuff, mm -hmm. or at least just stuff that wasn't reading all the articles in the journal of sport management. That's how I've been able to make a contribution to the field. Um, so to someone who's thinking about doing this, I'd say you have to be a voracious reader, at least if you want to, if you want to work for me, work with me as a PhD student, right? Um, that would be one thing that I'd say. The other thing is if you want a job, as a researching professor in a top research school, publications are key. Yeah. We, every time we see, we have, I've been on quite a few job search committees over my, uh, over the years. And the, if you don't have five publications, maybe even eight publications, or if you don't have a few really, really good publications, you're not getting a real look at for, yeah. for a job. And, and first yeah. author too. I mean, I've been on a few of those committees as well. It's important. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. And that is, that is hard, but it also means you have to focus on that. Maybe even before you get into the PhD program. Wow. I had a publication from my honors work. I had publications from my, when I was a master's student, which gave me a step up going into it. And if you don't have that, or even if you do have that, you have your coursework that you have to do, but really you need to be prioritizing the research. So the, the, the best lesson I learned very in like the first couple of weeks of my PhD was I knew about how long I needed to spend on my coursework and I left that all to the last minute so that I'd focus the bulk of my energies on doing that extra research. Um, and that like, that was key because things change. Yeah. No one really cares if you have a 4.0 as a, as a PhD candidate. <laughs> The secret's out, everyone. <laughs> you know, for needing an entire podcast to give an answer, your summation was incredible. Uh, and I went through with two key points. Be creative, right? And start your research early. So I yep. think that's something I can definitely share with ease uh, and or Shelley can moving forward. So I think that's perfect. Now I'm going to kind of press you for something in the other lane that you're in is how has the industry changed, sports specifically in your time uh, as a researcher? And, and where do you think it's going? Uh, it's changed in many ways, Brian, I think. Um, I, I did look at this question before when you sent it to me, and I was trying to think about what is something unique that I might be able to say to students who are trying to get into the industry. Yeah. And one thing that I would say is there are so many non-traditional leagues starting up all the time. Okay. Most of them are starting up and folding, but there are a lot starting up. And don't be afraid to to be be open to a job in a non-traditional league. I think that's such a great way to get your foot into the door. Um, I've had the luck of being able to work with some new leagues, like new rugby leagues that have mm. popped up, um, new expansion teams for uh, Major League Soccer, for example. Mm. And in those situations, people are hung, they're hungry for 
people who who want to go and, and do work and you can learn so much i mean what better learning experience about sport management the sport industry than seeing a a, a league start flourish maybe even fail like that yeah. that's such a great opportunity and then the other thing i'd say is there's a lot going on internationally uh, mm -hmm. the most successful new league in the history of the sport industry probably that might be a bit of a hyperbole but <laughs> it's the uh indian premier league okay it was launched and it was almost instantly profitable now mm. if you look at the history of sports leagues in the united states they take years and years and years decades to become profitable yeah um that that baseball leagues the NFL, like they took a long, long time to become profitable. So that is something that people should go check out if they're curious about. Yeah, it's the first I've heard of it. So I'm curious at this point. It's a cricket league. It's huge. Okay. It's, it changed the landscape for cricket by, oh my gosh, we could do another podcast just on cricket, Brian. It's, it's It takes far too long to explain the game. We've got uh, our work cut out. I, I feel like cricket and rugby are two underestimated um, sports in the U.S. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cricket's going to be a big deal, I think. Rugby, mm -hmm. is, people have been saying it's going to be a big deal for a long, long time, and it's um, always sort of struggled to make it, but... Um, I would look out for cricket. There's actually a purpose-built cricket facility somewhere in Florida. I've totally forgotten where it is, but they host, they've hosted some of the best international teams playing there. So that would be worth a road trip if you if you find some tickets to a game. And really quick follow-up on the international side of things. Um, do you, yeah, what, what advice do you have for students who are interested in um, you know, wanting to work abroad, or, or do you encourage students to consider working abroad who are very set on maybe some domestic leagues? Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts um, on that. I mean, yeah, I'd encourage them to cast your net widely. Um, I don't know exactly what the best avenue for doing that is. I've had one student come and ask me specifically saying, I want to do something international, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And I tried to connect the student with a few people he ended up, um, I think his 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 internship got ruined because of COVID. So like, obviously you can't do international stuff in the middle of a pandemic. But as we're sort of coming back from that, uh, I would recommend it. I think as a department, we might need to be a bit more deliberate about the type of networks that we develop to help get students in the door in other countries. Um, so that's maybe something for all of us to talk about um over a conference table or something but yeah i i can I, I recommend it yeah that's awesome i think that we're we've talked about it brian and i've had conversations around that and and whether that's you know internship opportunities study abroad programs um just even networks of people who work abroad that are interested in having our students work for them or intern or, or even um international projects Definitely, I think that's a, a, an area that would be could be a great place for our students to get plugged in. Um, so, you know, I, I think we've answered a lot of the other questions we had sent, um, but I would love to know any other um, uh, anything you know when it comes to the trend of where sports are going, um, the new things that are coming down the pipeline. Do you have anything they should be any articles or books or even websites that you would encourage them to to stay? up on when it comes to the direction the industry is going kind of it can be for practitioner or researcher it's a really broad question but you know right. I think it's interesting what people follow well i i have a little confession to make actually shelly so i do not follow any live news about the sport industry i don't okay. listen i don't read twitter i don't watch espn i don't listen to any podcasts and the reason is is because I could spend my whole day doing it mm. pretending that I'm working and not actually get any work done so I've I made a deliberate choice to sit back and sort of wait for some of the information to filter to me so I don't know what the, the best places are to be on the cutting edge there but there are some very interesting things happening in the industry 
Um, I, one of the, the businesses that I found fascinating is pando pooling. Uh, this comes from my work in, in minor league baseball, and it's an income pooling business. So minor league baseball players can create a pool and they um, sign a contract saying that they will put 10% of their post arbitration earnings into the pool and that will be distributed to everybody else. So what's going on here? It's because there's such a low chance of making it, players are getting together and betting on each other to make it rather than just themselves. Mm. So it gives them a little bit of financial security. Um, it is, well, it's just, it's really fascinating. It's a little bit controversial. I talk about it in my classes and that we're often quite divided about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing or whether athletes should do it or should not do it. But that's just one example of um, a really interesting trend that's coming out of the sport industry and actually their long-term business goal is to uh, open income pooling to everybody. So sport management graduates could enter a pool if they think that there's a chance that one of them is gonna become the next general manager of some team, but they're not sure if they're all gonna make it and that they could do the same thing as these minor league baseball players. So that's something that comes to mind as a new interesting trend. Uh, I think we're going to obviously get a lot of talk about name image likeness, um, about technology. Um, the good thing about being here at UF is that I think we're going to be on the forefront for the uh, AI and analytics developments that are happening. So the best place to be to keep on track with that is here, in my opinion. So. That's, uh, that's good. It is. I think I might have to adopt your, uh, your game plan there, cutting out the noise, podcast, social media, all that could bring down the stress in my life. Right now. And everyone for that matter. So, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's strategic. It's, it's yeah. sometimes I find myself in a conversation and people are talking about the new thing. I'm like, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And that can be a little bit embarrassing, but and um it's just something that i decided yeah but at the same time i mean you're you're letting stuff kind of filter bubble up to the top if you will and then wind up on your plate and i would imagine at that point those are things that are fairly important uh if you will as opposed to the uh, the noise that's kind of convoluting people's days so you know once it gets to, to that level and you're doing some creative research with it you know you're at the forefront, if you will, of uh, changing people's behaviors or minds or, you know, influencing their decisions. So it's a good place to be, uh, the way I see that. So it's pretty cool, Chris. I like that. There's also some fantastic developments in women's professional sport that are happening. Yeah. Specifically in Australia, I think that they're, they're doing a lot of new professional leagues. Mm. Uh, with I think the explicit goal of trying to develop women's sport even more. Um, I love Athletes Unlimited. Have you seen this? No. Mm -hmm. It's a league started it. It's in the States. It was the first, they did it softball. But it's a league that they just do different sports in. So it's softball, they've done volleyball. And then I can't remember what the next sport they're doing. But it's an, it's the way that it works is they get all the athletes together, they pick teams. They play um, a tournament and part of the athlete's pay is determined by rankings from the other players. So it's like it's 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 um, it's a really interesting model for a new type of sports league. The other thing that people should check out is Major League Lacrosse. This is a league that's partly athlete owned, started by Paul Rabel, who's the closest thing lacrosse has to a nationally internationally known superstar and it's a touring league so they're not based on cities the whole league tours around the country and plays a weekends of weekend of games in like a festival style now that's really challenging how we think about sport as um like does it have to be linked to local city identities or is it the, the athletes that that matter um, and of course, we we need to 
be um, thinking carefully about where um, the sport industry is going to go in terms of like race issues and justice issues. That's has to be the forefront of what we're thinking. And I think some of these leagues are they're at least marketing themselves as being better in this way. So that's one of the things that Major League Lacrosse does. Um, and a lot of the commissioners or the founders of these leagues are saying things like, we are leagues for athletes first. Um, so I'm not sure if they're really putting their money where their mouth is. So a, a classic example is the Alliance of American Football said, we're all about the athletes, we're all about the athletes, then they folded and left athletes stranded around the country with hotel bills and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we need to see whether that's more than just a marketing ploy. But the industry is, it, it, it has to change in terms of um, social justice issues. And I, I think it is is changing. No, it's a it's a great point. It's it's interesting because there's a parallel with what the PGA is doing with the uh -huh. Ford. Uh, Shelly and I talked about this. We're going to really just start marketing, and the athletes going to you know generate revenue based on their position amongst their fans uh, type deal. So it's kind of interesting to see this new you know method, if you will, unfolding. And, and, and it just goes to show you. You said you're unplugged from the podcast and these other elements. And you just enlightened me on three things that I'm completely unfamiliar with. So maybe you're doing it better. <laughs> well, Brian, I, I should explain why I know about these things. Okay. <laughs> so I've, I've done research projects on each of them. So yeah. I, I block out until I find something that I really want to know about. And then I dig in. Got it. So that I recently wrote an article on the viability of athlete owned sports leagues. Okay. Um, I also did a wrote a um, study on how these leagues are using um, employment branding, so branding themselves as good employers in order to uh, beat out rivals, so to, to sort of distinguish themselves in the market. So that's where I've learned about a lot okay. of this stuff. No, I, yeah. I appreciate the full disclosure. <laughs> doesn't make it doesn't just it doesn't just come into my head. No, I was like, he <laughs> just knows. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, so, from that perspective, you know, for our students and or beyond, if you will, what's a good way for them to connect with you, uh, whether it's LinkedIn or just emailing you uh, to learn more, if they if they wish. Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. Um, emailing me always works um i don't have any other because of this like blocking out <laughs> stuff, I don't, i'm not connected as well as um gator to gator obviously would be a great platform to so connect with me go. because i'm doing i'm trying to post a little bit of research there every once in a while as well so uh there or you're welcome to come by the office so, i haven't i think it's 306 if they, if they want to pop in. Sounds about right. I know we're in the 300 series, though. So 306. <laughs> if not, we'll direct them to where Chris's office is. Just so. go bother Brian and he'll, he'll show there you. There you go. Let me show you. No, so. Well, cool. Well, now with that said, we appreciate all the feedback that you provided for us. We like to have a little fun, too, on Voices from the Field. So we've got this Q&A that we do. It's rapid fire. It's one minute. And uh, Shelly is going to take the lead on this. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to um, just ask the question, whatever pops in your head, um, throw it out there. We'll see how many you get through in a minute. So I'm going to set my timer really quick. And um, if you want to pass on any, you're welcome to pass as okay. well. All right. Are you ready, Chris? I'm ready. All right. First job. How's a farm hand on an asparagus farm? <laughs> What's the worst haircut you've ever had? Probably right now, I've been cutting my hair for by myself for five or six years, or longer than that, a long time. Okay. Favorite time of the day? 6 a.m. When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? I, a coach or a firefighter, I think. Yeah. Okay. Name two daily habits you have. 
I do a French press coffee every morning and I go for a walk after dinner with my newborn, well, new, seventh month old son every afternoon. Nice. And if I looked up your most played songs, what song or artist would I see? Oh, Anderson Park. Okay. Maybe Radiohead, maybe a mixture of those. And last one, favorite zoo animal. I don't, uh, favorite zoo animal. I, I'm just getting my thoughts clouded with, um, I, I grew up on a chicken farm, so I don't, a chicken's not a zoo animal, but that is <laughs> the only thing that's coming to my head. It works. We'll take the chicken. <laughs> Listen, it depends on what zoo you go to, first off. Yeah. Secondly, your hair looks like it's professionally done. So oh, thank uh, you, Brian. I appreciate <laughs> yeah, the, the asparagus farm. Dang, that's pretty yeah, cool. that was an amazing answer. <laughs> I like it was a it was a it was a it was a good job. Actually, my second apart from working on my my parents' chicken farm and the asparagus farm, my second proper job was working in a factory as a farmhand. So I had some pretty interesting jobs, yeah. Awesome. A lot of farm life. Like it. I like yeah. it. I really do. Mm -hmm. So now with that said, uh, Chris, it's been a real pleasure uh, for you to join us today. I, I know your time is very valuable and it's it's great to share your research and or your professional endeavors that you've experienced. So I know that University of Florida Department of Sport Management, but the students, the faculty, the alumni appreciate and value your thoughts that you have shared with us today. So with that said, uh, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Everything UFSPM. We are your host, Brian Avery. And Shelly Lyle. Yeah, go, go Gator. Go. There we go. go. Gator. <laughs> I was like, where did I go? No. <laughs>